Hey guys, welcome to episode 25 of the Fear Being Average podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Rinka. On today's episode, I have a awesome guest named Christy Storchuk. She is a science writer focused around the ketogenic diet and metabolic therapies. So on this episode, we discuss everything about the ketogenic diet and different lifestyle practices to aid in longevity. We discuss the ketogenic diet in the brain. We discuss what exactly the ketogenic diet is and different aspects that you can take and implement into your lifestyle. We discuss living a healthy, well-balanced lifestyle as well as preemptive health measures. And of course, we discuss preventing disease and aiding in a healthy longevity focused lifestyle so again guys the way this podcast grows is by you the viewers by helping us subscribe sharing and liking this content enjoy today's episode Okay, guys, so we are here on episode 25 of the Fear of Being Average podcast with Christy Storschuk. She is a science writer focused around the ketogenic diet and metabolic therapies. There you go. We got it out there. <laughs> Good job. How are you doing, Christy? I am well. How are you, Brandon? Good. We were just talking about how you came came from CrossFit, yeah? Yep. How long? Do it every day. <laughs> every day. Good for you. How, how long have you been a CrossFitter for? Uh, since actually high school. So it's been about eight years wow. um, that I've been doing CrossFit. I, but on and off. So I went to school on a scholarship for volleyball. Mm-hmm. And so I obviously had to stop CrossFit. So I'm an on and offer CrossFitter. Yeah. Well, again, I was going to say for like, if you were going since high school, I'm like, that's a lot of time just to be doing like the same kind of lifting, which isn't a bad thing. Cause it's like, you just usually see their spikes for working out. Some people, some people go to like functional training they go crossfit then they go more sport specific or whatever it is right so do something for that long obviously it's um it's a pretty dynamic that's one thing i haven't tried before like i've done crossfit-esque workouts but never in a crossfit environment which probably would pertain quite well for me but uh yeah never never stepped it foot into a crossfit gym it's addicting yeah that's that's what i hear and catch the crossfit bug then you should go but if you want to avoid it (laughs) Don't do it. That's it. I'm not, not, not trying to avoid it. Not trying to avoid it. So what, what, what is it about it? Like, I know, like, I've talked to your sister, Bronwyn. You guys are, like, the health health sisters of uh, of, of Burlington here. Um, <laughs> maybe you guys have expanded now. But um, she was talking about how CrossFit's, like, massive aspect of, like, community. And that's, like, a big selling feature really? that kind of keeps you wanting to go back. Yeah. So I I really love community, and I will preach it to the day I die. So I've always played team sports. And once you kind of grow past that as a kid, CrossFit kind of filled that gap once I was done with team sports. Uh, You get to know the people in your classes. Most of the time, people go to the same hour of the day. And as soon as you're done the workout, it's you don't like start taking down your bar or anything. You cheer on the rest of the class. You high five everyone once you're done. It's like it's it's very much like a team sport. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why I leave on a high every single time. So it's obviously doing something good. And I, I think Braun's right when it's the biggest aspect of it is community. Because I could do the same workouts in a gym by myself, but it's just not the same. You, you like being around other people, and especially for me because I work from home. So it's kind of like my social life and my gym time at the same time. So 
Cool. Two birds, one stone. Yeah, yeah. No, I like it. Okay, we'll, we'll jump into, uh, we might get back to working out, who knows, probably. Um, but let's get into, obviously, kind of what you focus on uh, primarily. And you're, you're big into the ketogenic diet, as we discussed, and that's kind of like mm-hmm. what you do, right? So for those of us that don't know really what a, the ketogenic diet consists of, what it looks like, give us a little bit of, of your story, how you even got into it, and okay. the benefits of it that you see for yourself and, and how it's helped others. All right, I'm going to go on a big, long ramble <laughs> go, then. Go for it. <laughs> yeah. So I'll uh, initially talk about how I got into this space. So I studied plant science, actually, at, um, at the University of Guelph, and I wanted to go into naturopathic medicine like my sister, but I <laughs> realized that I wanted to go into research later on in my undergrad, and so I started reaching out to professors that were studying the ketogenic diet because I had always had an interest in nutrition and different diets, and the ketogenic diet was the only diet that was really backed by science. So there's real molecules that you can follow in the body. There's mechanisms at the cellular level that you can research with um, when you're in ketosis. So that was what really drew me to the diet because you can't study that with veganism, paleo, Mediterranean, et cetera. There's no real um, cellular mechanisms involved. So I reached out to Dom Diagostino, who is one of the big head, like the leading researchers in the world of the ketogenic diet and he actually responded to me and he wasn't looking for new students at the time but he hired me in as his assistant instead and so I started working on projects with him um, doing writing projects and different educational content Um, so he's been my mentor over the last two years and I just never really looked back from once I started with him I've been riding the wave ever since and every day I'm researching the diet and I'm writing about it so that's become my career. Um, so my job is to literally just research and write all day. Um, but to get into what the ketogenic diet is in itself, um, it really is just a diet that puts you into the state of metabolic ketosis. So, um, you do this with a high fat, very low carbohydrate diet, but technically, so there is a big focus on macros with the ketogenic diet, but I like the definition of just a diet that puts you in ketosis. So if you were in a massive calorie deficit and only eating protein, that would be 100% protein. But say it's only 500 calories, it's still a diet that puts you in ketosis. So technically, it would be a ketogenic diet. But no one's doing that. We want a sustainable approach. So you do that with very high fat, very low carb. So you can eat in calorie maintenance. You can eat in calorie deficit. um, But the the goal of these macro ratios are to put you into a state of ketosis. And it's and ketosis is defined by um, a blood BHB, beta-hydroxybutyrate, level above 0.5. So you can measure this with a simple um, blood meter. Um, it's kind of expensive if you do it frequently, but the strips are about a dollar each. So every time you test your blood, it's a dollar. Um, but this can, a lot of people have to do this when they're following a therapeutic ketogenic diet, which means that they are managing a disease with ketosis which we can get to later. But um, so essentially when you're in ketosis, you are generating ketones and there's three primary ketones. There's beta-hydroxybutyrate, there's acetoacetate, and there's acetone. But beta-hydroxybutyrate is the primary one that is circulating in your blood and that's the one that we measure with a blood meter and that's what indicates ketosis. But you can measure through your breath and that measures acetone. So there's breath meters that you just blow into and that'll measure um, acetone and then no one really measure, measures acetoacetate, but um, you can measure that too in the urine um, or blood, I think. But I don't know if there's any meters that actually measure it. But anyway, so yeah, the ketogenic diet, you eat a 
um, to put you in a state of ketosis. Awesome. Makes sense. <laughs> Make, makes sense to me. Now, yeah. how long does it take for someone to get into ketosis? So say someone's like, I want to switch up my diet. I want to get into ketosis, whether it's for uh, sport. Just say, again, I do endurance racing. So there's a lot of, I guess, new information based around like a fat-based approach because it, for long durations of um, activity going on 20 plus hours, um, it obviously benefits a lot of people to burn fat as fuel rather than having to keep, you know, I guess, fueling up with carbohydrates, which again, I've only approached it with the carbohydrate approach because luckily my stomach can eat a lot of crap and I can just keep going and, and, it, and it worked well for me and I like carbs. Um, but in terms of someone who like wants, say I had a race coming up, what would be the the metrics behind me getting into a ketosis state or ketogenic state, sorry, for you to actually use your ketones efficiently? Right. So if we were just to stop eating right now, it would take about 24 hours to empty our glycogen stores and start generating ketones. So that's fasting. It can take longer with a ketogenic diet, depending on how many carbs you're still including in the diet, depending on how much fat you're eating and depending on how much protein you're eating and depending on your activity level. So there's so many variables that will contribute. Um, but if you were, yeah, just to fast, you could get into ketosis, obviously, that's the quickest way to get into ketosis. And then if you were active on top of that, you would get into ketosis even faster because what we really need to do in order to start burning fat and generating ketones is to empty our glycogen stores. So glycogen, you can look at as like your, your lever of whether you're going to be burning carbohydrates or you're going to be burning fat. Um, so we need to empty these glycogen stores and I'm talking liver glycogen. So muscle is different. We don't actually use that glycogen to, we don't put it back into Oh, did I cut out there? You cut out there. Best okay. part. Can you hear me? Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're back at it. You're good. Okay. So we don't, the glycogen that we store in our muscles doesn't get put back into circulation. So we don't actually use that to fuel the body. We use it to fuel our muscles though. So when we're exercising, we can obviously break that down for energy. Um, but to get into ketosis, it doesn't, um, it's not contributing to our blood glucose. So what we need to do is uh, empty our liver glycogen. We're going to suppress the hormone insulin with a low carbohydrate diet because carbohydrates have the biggest impact on insulin, which is the hormone that responds to glucose to shuttle glucose from our cells or from our blood into our cells. Uh, but the real advantage to a ketogenic diet in sport is definitely endurance sports. So um, this is very low intensity, but constant movement. And when we're in a fat-based metabolism, we basically have access to unlimited fuel. The caveat is that we do have to be keto-adapted or fat-adapted. So, But most athletes are, um, whether they know it or not, probably pretty metabolically flexible, which means that they have the ability to switch between carbs and fats um, very easily. It's those that are really metabolically damaged or obese, type 2 diabetic, they have basically lived their whole life bombarding their cells with glucose and insulin is now not not doing its job properly. Um, and these people actually find it really hard to switch over to a fat-based metabolism. But athletes who are young um, can probably become fat-adapted or keto-adapted pretty easily, but it is a period period that you have to basically go through some discomfort and you might your performance might take a hit. Mm -hmm. So um, it's actually interesting because I think that there would be a lot more research on endurance exercise and uh, low-carb diets if 
athletes were willing to go through the adaptation phase. Mm -hmm. So um, maybe it would be like extraordinarily beneficial to all of these athletes if they were on a ketogenic diet, but we just don't know because most athletes can't actually afford to give up performance for say six months because that's how long it could take to adapt to a ketogenic diet. Um, But there's also tools that you can use to enhance the adaptation. So exogenous ketones, MCTs, intermittent fasting. Um, But yeah, you do really have to give yourself a good chunk. And maybe if you're not seeing any benefits right away, if you maybe like past the six month mark, if you're still like, okay, I feel like crap, my performance sucks, then maybe keto is just for you in terms of uh, endurance or like in terms of your performance. And that's okay. Like you don't have to I'm not going to preach the ketogenic diet for everybody, um, especially athletes. Like, like I said, we're very athletes are very metabolically flexible, and mm-hmm. it's important to kind of keep that metabolic flexibility. It's just that when we when we lose the ability to burn fat, which is probably 99% of the population who just eat carbs all day. Yeah. Um, so we uh, we have to train ourselves to start using fat again, and this involves upregulating our transporters on the cell surfaces that literally use fats for fuel and can bring them into our cells. So there's a lot of um, adaptations that go on when you follow a ketogenic diet for a long time, and this will have dramatic effects on your athletic performance, um, especially endurance. But yeah, if you are willing to go through an adaptation phase, um, it could really enhance your endurance performance because like I said, it's basically unlimited fuel. So uh, even the leanest individual will have about 40,000 yeah 40,000 calories worth of yeah uh, fuel on their body so when that means you could go an entire race without having to refuel it's uh, but carbohydrates we have our liver glycogen which is about 100 grams of glucose which is about 400 calories so 400 calories goes pretty fast in a long term race yeah. so uh if you think of it that way, that means that you have to be refueling all the time, which means you're taking down like sugary goos or whatever you refuel with during a race. Um, but like you said that your digestive system can handle it, but a lot of people can't. They have GI distress when they're during a race and it can, um, that can actually interfere with performance probably more than a ketogenic diet. Whatever down pitfalls of a ketogenic diet is, maybe it's equal with a carb, carb-based diet. So I don't know. Um, I think it's very individualized, but I can uh, definitely see an advantage to being fat adapted for endurance athletes. And that's supported in the literature as well. Um, So there's been research out of Ohio State University. They study a lot of um, athletic performance with very low carbohydrate diets. And there's people winning ultra marathons who are on ketogenic diets. So it's definitely um, something that people can thrive on. um, But it definitely takes some individual perspectives and approaches and might um need uh, or require an, a period of keto adaptation mm-hmm. well that's where like the research gets tricky for a lot of people because you can be like well this endurance athlete's a uh, fat adapted and he wins ultras right then you have another race where the guy is like advocates carb loading right then he wins right. so then you're like your mind starts exploding right but again it comes back to 
I guess, like just playing around with what diet works best for you, right? At right. the end of the day. And like, obviously, like you said, like, even though you're, you're a keto expert, like you understand like the basic aspects of like, it's not going to be for necessarily for everybody, but having a sustainable, healthy diet is what you're obviously preaching, right? Let's eliminate the sugars and the processed foods um, totally. and go more natural organic based fuel to make sure that that sustains you throughout your day, right? Exactly. And from an evolutionary perspective, like it's not like we were training for ultra marathons all, all day, every day. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe carb based metabolisms are going to, it's going to turn out that they are superior or something. I don't know. Um, it's a performance is a new world when it comes to human metabolism, because we are all, like extreme athletes are putting their bodies under a lot of stress. And we don't know, maybe there's going to be differences in metabolism for someone who's uh, carb-based versus fat-adapted versus super keto-adapted where they function really well off ketones. So um, I think a lot of research is going to be coming out in the next like decade or so um, indicating more uh, or advancing our understanding of low-carbohydrate diets in performance um, and, and, and across sports. So mm-hmm. like powerlifting and uh, like CrossFit style HIIT workouts and then endurance, like they all – work differently and have different fuel utilizations um so it's a it's a cool area of research but i don't think we fully grasp the understanding just yet Mm -hmm. now do you think it's going to go to that way in terms of like more like fast twitch explosive movement pattern because again obviously right now the research is back behind obviously like in like the most fuel efficient source is carbohydrates most efficiently right that can hit you fast the sugars naturally you just use those sugars immediately like you would in like in anything right you just take that sugar in boom you use it and it's the most efficient source of fuel so do you think the research is going to like kind of i go go the other direction because right now it seems like it's very heavy that way but then for fat and endurance is very heavy that way so do you think that like, there's blurred lines between the two i think it depends on your level of like how your level of activity. So mm-hmm. if you're just an average Joe and you go into the gym for an hour to an hour and a half, you are probably, and you're keto adapted, you're probably going to have enough liver or muscle glycogen to, to get you through your workout without any detriment. So it's the people that train three times a day or like our, our, a collegiate athlete or, mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah. So like if you're, um, training multiple times a day, maybe you do need carbohydrates to refuel your glycogen stores. But once you're keto adapted, they've actually shown that you can replenish glycogen stores just as efficiently as someone who's on a carb based, uh, diet. However, they, it, it takes a period of time to replenish your glycogen stores. So, uh, carbohydrates are faster, but you can still do it in a keto adapted state. It just may take a little bit longer. Um, and then, so what I'm saying is that if you're just someone that goes to the gym for an hour a day, then that's fine. You can function just fine off the amount of glycogen that you're replenishing in your muscles because even on a no carb diet, you're going to um, be making glucose in the body uh, from the breakdown of fatty acids. And one of the products of the breakdown is called glycerol and it gets converted into glucose. So you can store that as glycogen. So, um, when we're talking about just a normal any day person, you can function just fine on a ketogenic diet. I'm in ketosis most of the time when I'm doing CrossFit and I have not taken a hit to my performance. I mean, I'm just in one individual and this is just an anecdote, but I seem to like, even when I take exogenous ketones, I function so much better in the gym uh, and I have so much energy, 
but either I'm not working out hard enough or I'm just a special individual. I don't know. But if you wanted to play around with knowing how you perform in the gym in ketosis, you could just try some exogenous ketones and see how you perform and how you perform. Um, but for extreme athletes and elite athletes, maybe that's when ketogenic diets and more fast, um, like hit workouts and, and lifting and stuff, maybe they need a different approach or maybe they can just, they can handle more carbs in the first place too. Cause you're training a lot. And if you want to be in ketosis and still eat carbs, you just have to train a lot. <laughs> so there's actually a way around carb restriction and just by working out a lot. <laughs> now, what would that carb, um, level be around if you wanted to still like eat carbs and you're training say two three times a day you know just let's say two right and but you still want to be in ketosis like what does that look like it's totally individual so maybe one person uh could handle like 100 grams of carbs which that's not ketogenic in the mainstream like no one would say 100 grams of carbs is a ketogenic diet but so mainstream what's the lowest amount of carbs um, so the general recommendations yeah. are anything under 50 grams sorry, of carbs highest, a day. Okay. Yeah. So uh, 50 grams total carbs or around 20 grams net carbs. So net carbs is total carbs minus fiber, and that gives you net. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally like or recommend people to count total carbs because there's a lot of products out there, like keto products, and they'll have a lot of total carbs and then some sugar alcohols and then some fiber. And you might end up when you're counting net carbs, it's really easy to rely on packaged foods. And I'm a big proponent of whole foods Mm -hmm. and a normal whole food, real food diet and eliminating as much processed foods as you can. And even keto packaged foods are still processed foods. Um, So when you count total carbs, it kind of eliminates these foods because you have less justification for why you should eat that bar with two grams net carbs. Mm -hmm. When in reality it has like, 12 grams of erythritol in it or something. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. That makes sense. Now, going going off of exogenous ketones and ketone esters, like does, does that just speed up the process, obviously, to get you into ketosis? And can you still have, like a, say, a 150-gram um, carb diet and then take the, the esters or the exogenous ketones and be in ketosis so you can be at like a higher level of carbs? You could technically eat a bowl of pasta and chug some exogenous ketones and be in ketosis. Okay. So um, carbohydrate level actually doesn't matter when you're taking exogenous ketones because they will enter circulation. And if you measured your blood, it would look like you're in a state of fasting ketosis. Hmm. So exogenous ketones are just adding another fuel to the system. And they, if you're using them, if your cells are using them, then that means that they are probably going through adaptations because if you're using them consistently even on a carb-based diet you're still exposing your cells to ketones and they will take them up they'll use them um, which could enhance uh, the adaptation period so if you wanted to kind of use that as a tool or if you wanted to have the best of both worlds and have access to carbohydrates and ketones um, so when you take exogenous ketones it will naturally lower your blood glucose Mm -hmm. so um, it's not you're never going to have a state of like super high glucose and super high ketones um because of the blood pH and our regulatory uh, mechanisms in the body. And ketones are actually glucose sparing. So that's kind of an evolutionary basis where 
if we were generating ketones, it was so that we would spare glucose for the brain. So other tissues will shut down Mm -hmm. their ability to use glucose so that all the glucose that is being made is going to our brain or because we have um, certain cells in our brain that require glucose still, even in a state of ketosis. But your liver will take care of that even on a no carb, even when we're fasting our liver will make all the glucose that it needs, but our other tissues will start relying on different fuels in order to, like I said, spare glucose for the brain. Um, so that's just one of the adaptations that we go through when we're keto adapted and our muscles will actually go from using ketones. So at first, when you just get into ketosis, um, our muscles will start using ketones for fuel. But as we become keto adapted, now the ketones are being spared for the brain. So our muscles will start using fatty acids. It's kind of confusing. There's a lot of metabolic switches that go on, um, and it's kind of on a gradient the longer you're in ketosis. Mm -hmm. But basically, the longer you are in ketosis, the better you become at utilizing ketones. And exogenous ketones can kind of be used to train your cells, and it's like practice time for your cells to use ketones. And there's a lot of advantages to exogenous ketones, in my opinion, just because I think that ketones are very powerful, um, and it's especially um, in a preventative uh, perspective, if we are exposing our body to ketones, especially our brains when we're young and um, going through, as we age, if we're um, exposing our brain to ketones, I think that there could be a lot of advantages um, for anybody. So if you're, especially those who are at risk for near like degenerative diseases, such as Alzheimer's. So if your parent had Alzheimer's disease, there could be a lot of benefit to just having some NCTs in your coffee every day. So I'm a proponent of bulletproof coffees. I use NCTs every single day. Mm-hmm. NCTs are kind of like the Portman's uh, exogenous ketone in that it they are rapidly converted to ketones in, um, by the liver. So you can use that as a tool, and it makes your coffee taste better. So it's like <laughs> having a frothy coffee in the morning and then also protecting your brain if you want some justification for why you deserve that fat in the morning. Um, win so win. Kind of yeah, exactly. So that's another way you could technically be inducing ketosis is through MCTs, even on a carbohydrate-based diet again. Um, so exogenous ketones. So ketone esters you mentioned. Yeah. So there's actually only a couple ketone esters on the market, and um, I think there's only two brands, to be honest, and they're very expensive. Most people won't buy um, ketone esters. One serving is about $30. So um, the the exogenous ketones that people are taking are ketone salts. So this is just a ketone attached to a mineral like sodium, magnesium, potassium. So there's also additional benefits to taking ketone salts because they're also also replenishing electrolytes, which are very important when you're on a very low carbohydrate diet. You actually, um, because you're suppressing the hormone insulin, you're getting rid of a lot of water. So you might uh, like pee more than you're used to. Um, but with this, you're actually depleting sodium from the body. And when you're depleting yourself of sodium, you might end up wasting potassium. So you can uh, end up with some electrolyte imbalances. So it's important to replenish these electrolytes and exogenous ketones, uh, ketone salts are a way to do this while also supplementing with the ketones itself. Uh, so I, I like ketone salts. Um, and they're a lot cheaper. They're just not as potent as exogenous ketones. So exog- or as ketone esters. So ketone esters mm-hmm. are the most like elite version of exogenous ketones. Ketone salts are the most available. They're still going to do the job. If you mix them with some MCTs, you'll prolong your. Um, it'll elevate your ketone levels for a longer duration. So that's one way to uh, manipulate them. 
Uh, but yeah, so I kind of don't even remember the initial question, but hopefully that was some background info, info on exogenous ketones. <laughs> Darn, you answered you answered a lot right there. That was good. So if you're in um, if you're going around the ketogenic diet, should you be supplementing with some sort of potassium or sodium product, or like how how does that work? If you're eating enough like leafy greens and vegetables, you should be getting enough magnesium and potassium. Uh, but if and and then sodium, you can just salt your food, mm-hmm. like liberally salt your food. So there's ways to do it without without supplementing. I personally just like electrolyte supplements because I like flavored stuff in my water, so it makes me drink more water. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I use electrolyte supplements, but I don't think they're necessary. But if you're getting symptoms of electrolyte imbalances, like you're lightheaded, you're fatigued you're peeing a lot, um, you, yeah, you just feel like symptoms of being dehydrated, uh, then you should, or like cramping, like muscle cramping, that's a big symptom of electrolyte imbalances. So, or, and headaches, I don't know if I mentioned that, but in that case, there's no harm in taking an electrolyte supplement, but I don't think exogenous ketones are required in any way. Uh, you can certainly get all the benefits just from dietary ketosis or nutritional ketosis, um, is actually the real definition of ketosis that's induced through diet. So um, you don't need exogenous ketones, but you could maybe benefit, especially for athletes, by taking exogenous ketones. Interesting. So just going back on that, so it's not like you're like necessarily doubling up on your fuel source. It's just that you're going to be using the ketones primarily before you use the glucose, correct? Um, actually, that's a good question. I don't know about the like hierarchy of – because – could in you, normal you, physiology, you would use glucose first yeah. before you start making ketones. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure what the physiology would be if you uh, already have glucose present and then you add ketones. Yeah, like the but, idea of me being on like a high-carb diet that I'm like, okay, well, to amplify my endurance race, I'm going to take exogenous ketones because I want to be like this superhuman of like ketones with glycogen and I'm just going to use both of these right. bad boys. No, that makes sense. That like, I would so. I just use the ketones first and then and then like eventually once those get depleted, I would go into glucose and once the glucose gets depleted, do I go back into ke- – like I don't know. It would be a very interesting – yeah, there's probably a mix of fuels going on. So we actually use free fatty acids a lot when we're exercising, especially endurance athletes. So um, you can just look at it that as fat if we want to just mm-hmm. call it something simple. So, um, But based on the fact that exogenous ketones lower blood glucose, I would say that ketones are being used yeah. in uh, top yeah. hierarchy before glucose. But free fatty acids are also being used. Um, so you have like these three fuel sources now. And our muscles love fatty acids they actually store their own fat uh, right by where they need to use it so um that's another fuel because in in a low state exercise you're not really using glucose you're using fats and and then if you have ketones present you're probably using ketones too Hmm. but i'm not an expert on that on exercise physiology so this no i know that's one that we we, we we talked about saying more like the neuro aspects of it right Um, Mm -hmm. which again let's get into that so talk about um, the neuro functions that you know ketogenic diet because again there's a lot of research based on alzheimer's and dementia and stuff like that and helping people even with cancer so yeah dive into to that aspect and how the ketogenic diet actually helps with disease totally so uh this is why i'm most passionate about the diet just because alzheimer's disease is devastating there's like crazy statistics of people with neurodegeneration and the link between insulin resistance obesity and type 2 diabetes is just 
it's so dramatic. It's huge. Um, so if there's any preventative ways that we can, if there's lifestyle changes that we can make when we're young to prevent Alzheimer's or neurodegeneration, that's just so important to me. Um, so ketones actually, so, okay. When we age, if we are insulin resistant, if we're metabolically damaged, we have an increased risk of our brain just basically failing to use glucose properly for fuel. So as this deteriorates, it happens decades before any symptoms of cognitive decline or any symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. So if our brain glucose metabolism is deteriorating, our neurons are literally not getting enough fuel to be able to clear toxic proteins, um, to regenerate themselves, to repair themselves from damage, and this, and eventually they'll die. So they're starving. So it's basically like you are in abundance. Like it's, it, the problem isn't that there's no glucose available. The problem is that your brain can't use it. So even if there's abundance of glucose around, your brain thinks that it's starving, and these cells will die, and that's what leads to cognitive decline and further Alzheimer's disease or other neurodegenerative diseases. So, um, but research, there's a lot of research showing that ketone metabolism stays intact. Even when glucose metabolism is failing us, ketone metabolism is working just fine. So if we are supplying our brain with ketones as an alternative fuel to glucose, because our brain loves ketones, this is the brain is basically the reason, one of the main reasons we make ketones. So uh, our brain will take in ketones in proportion to what we provide in circulation. So if we are the more if we're in a deeper state of ketosis, meaning we have higher levels of ketones in our blood, the more our brain is going to be using for fuel. And this can basically circumvent and bypass the problems with glucose and restore energy flow to the brain. So this means that our neurons have the energy now to properly function, to repair themselves, um, which will prevent cell death and thus will prevent neurodegeneration. So um, that's why I think that everyone can do some like small steps every day. First off, physical activity, that's a huge, will be a huge benefit for protection, uh, neural protection. And then just simply putting a tablespoon of MCT oil in your coffee, taking it by the spoonful, whatever, that's a small step you can take to just expose yourself to a small amount of ketones on the daily. Um, obviously, a ketogenic diet will uh, that induces ketosis will prevent will allow ketones um to get to the brain and and if you do have impaired glucose metabolism like i said it will, these ketones will bypass that problem um and of just avoiding avoiding the avoiding processed foods and highly refined carbohydrates that can increase risk for insulin resistance so insulin resistance in in its simplest form and there's a lot of nuance around it it's really hard to define because different tissues are, respond differently. But at its core, insulin resistance basically just means that our cells have stopped responding to insulin mm -hmm. and now glucose is really high and our pancreas is responding by pumping more and more insulin out because it's like, hey, glucose isn't getting into the cell. We need more insulin. So we have this problem of high blood glucose and high insulin and this is pre-diabetes. So if that's maintained for a long time, then that can lead to type 2 diabetes. And type 2 diabetes is basically uh, linked to and associated with every chronic modern disease right now. So this is why I think there's a big value in preventative measures. And that's why I think that low-carbohydrate diets can be very powerful in preventing this insulin resistance from even occurring in the first place. And, so, and then, like I said, the trickling effects of neuroprotection as we age because 
brain glucose metabolism just simply deteriorates as we age. And um, this is shown in uh, like even healthy individuals. You can be healthy, but as we age, our glucose metabolism just falls. um, And then, yeah, like I said, and I explained how that leads to um, neurodegeneration. So that's why I'm a proponent of exposing our brain to ketones when we're young. And that doesn't mean that we have to be in ketosis all the time or even follow a ketogenic diet. Just avoid the problems with um, refined carbohydrates that can lead to metabolically damage or, or metabolic damage. And then also um, exposing yourselves to a small amount of ketones here and there, um, whether you do that through diet, MCTs, exogenous ketones, exercise, those are going to be highly beneficial for healthy aging. It's funny when you break it down, like it's not a very difficult or complicated system, right? Because sometimes you get so overwhelmed by different diets and different mechanisms of like how to approach certain things. But like you said, it's very simple at the end of the day, right? Like even if you don't want to go down a ketogenic diet, it's like, well, there's things you can do that are very simplistic that you just kind of make part of your daily culture and make make them rituals that can aid drastically for longevity, right? Totally. Yeah. And I, and like, if I was to promote anything to anyone, it would be to remove refined carbohydrates, grains and sugar, refined grains and sugar from the diet and vegetable oils. The mm-hmm. big culprit in yeah, our... Yeah, I was, I was reading about that the other day, just like talking about how, at least with sugars, you can use sugars as like a source, right? As like a fuel source, right? If I take sugars in, like I can go run a 10K right now, or I can go to the gym, pump it out, and there there it goes, right? But with oils, they sit in your body a little bit more, right? Like they're harder to actually like get rid of. Yeah, we, so we, when we eat fat, our fat in our bodies actually gets implemented into our cell membranes. Mm-hmm. So the more vegetable oils that we're eating means that we're eating more omega-6s, which are highly inflammatory. It's an essential fatty acid, and it shouldn't be disregarded at all. Like, it's not that we're demonizing omega-6. It's that it's found in way too high proportions in vegetable oils. And vegetable oils also come with the risk of being rancid, highly processed. It's just not no nothing good comes out of vegetable oils. Um, So we actually implement them into our cell membranes. And these, when we trigger in a, a response in our cells where we need to defend ourselves um, from, like, this is why we, um, this is inflammation. Inflammation is actually a protective mechanism to, like, trigger a response to defend ourselves against something that's damaging us. But uh, our cells will release these omega-6 uh, products, and this can be pro-inflammatory. Mm-hmm. And in, in abundance, that means that we're creating a very inflammatory state in the body. Um, which no one wants to be in chronic inflammation because that's also linked to basically every chronic disease. <laughs> yeah, you're seeing that way more often. I think there's way more talk about inflammation now being like a, a huge component, right? I think people are just more mm-hmm. more aware of the things that they're doing that will actually increase and aid in uh, inflammation. So um, going off that, like the omega-3s to 6 ratio, is it like a 3 to 1, that like omega-3s, 3 to 1, or is it 2 to 1? Like uh, what was the scenario or ratio? Yeah, so we ideally want to reach a one-to-one, like as, oh, okay. as best we can to one-to-one, or like one-to-four to one, like one, <laughs> you get what I'm saying? Like no. one-to-four to one um, of omega-6 to omega-3 is what we want to aim for, but the average American or North American um, consumes about 20-to-one, wow. which is obviously like four to 20 times more than we should be consuming or five to 20 times more than we should be consuming. And 
this is, yeah, this is creating chronic inflammation and yeah, it's not good. So if we can decrease our omega-6 and up our omega-3, then that's how we're going to reach the ideal ratios for humans. Um, Omega-3s are so important. And this is also, I know this is not going to be part of like what you were probably going to ask me, but this is why I'm actually not an advocate of vegan diets because of omega-3. So Mm. DHA and EPA are only found in animal foods and we actually convert very little of what's found in plant foods to it's a different form of omega-3 and we convert very little of it to EPA and DHA and EPA and DHA are such large components of brain of our brain and contribute to brain health so that's why I'm a big proponent of like eating fish and Mm -hmm. um like cod liver I take um you can get that in a supplement and yeah that's one of the reasons why I'm a I'm a proponent of animal-based diets yeah, that makes sense. And so what is the bioavailability of plant sources? Like how, how much do you have to eat in order to get that necessary DHA and EPA? I think only like 5% of it is converted over to EPA and DHA. Yeah, so it's, 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 it's f- very funny how many people just kind of like go off like, ah, well, plants, you know, like animals eat plants and that's the nutrients that the animals have, right? But then you're like, yeah, but there's such a disconnect of like actually understanding about like that bioavailability, how much are you actually getting into your system? <laughs> like, you know, right. like that. I know, that... bioavailability is huge. It's, it's kind of crazy because like you will read packages in the grocery store of like hemp seeds and chia and flax and they'll be like, great source of omega-3. Yeah. And then that's just very misleading because people will be buying that to increase their omega-3s, but really they're not absorbing any of it. Interesting. Interesting. Okay, so let's talk about that going off oils for a second. So people that use canola oils and vegetable oils and maybe crappy oils to cook with and even put on their salads, what would be some healthy alternatives to those measures? Uh, I really like grass-fed butter and ghee. Yes, um, yes. So for cooking. I also like extra virgin olive oil, uh, virgin unrefined coconut oil, um, avocado oil so these all of those examples have higher smoke points than uh, vegetable oils which means that they will degrade uh, um, you can heat them up a lot mm-hmm. further than vegetable oils before they degrade um, so that's a big thing that's why I use a lot of butter and ghee um, also butter and ghee to me just seems very it seems way less processed mm-hmm. than um, any like even coconut oil olive oil and avocado oil those aren't bad examples and they I still use them but butter and ghee to me just seem way less processed because it's something you can actually make in nature. So I'm like pretty sure people were making and churning butter mm-hmm. a long time ago before they were making coconut oil or um, avocado oil. So we need a lot of machinery and everything to make avocado oil and coconut oil. But um, I, I don't know. From, I don't know if I'm making this up no. in my head, but I don't know. It just seems more natural. No, it's a, it's a good point, right? Like if you can actually think back to like our ancestors and be like, well, if they were, if they had butter, right? Because of like animal sources, you're like, okay, like that's, that makes sense that we should be eating that thing that could be produced naturally and organically without, like you said, machinery or mechanisms, right? Right, exactly. That makes sense. Although I'm not a huge fan of dairy, which yeah. kind of seems counterintuitive. Um, but for some reason I've just, I, I like butter and ghee. I include butter and ghee, even though I don't consume dairy. But I'm, I'm assuming like there's different, it's like people that say like they don't eat, you know, breads or grains, right? But there's a difference between like grains and like natural organic grains, right? So, cause everyone like villainize, villainizes dairy now and grains, right? And it's like, don't 
go near these things, they're going to, you know, increase inflammation and they're going to mess up your, in your microbiome. But I guess there's a difference. Oh, obviously there's a difference between like a natural organic grain and dairy product than like a processed dairy product. Right. 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 Yeah. And I think there's stuff that's in dairy products that aren't in like when you just take the fat out, which would just be butter and ghee. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Um, so I want to go on. Oh, and tallow, actually. Tallow, Ta- big one. When I make bone broth, the, the top layer is just all fat, and I keep that in a jar, and I use that. Okay, so like that gross kind of like yellow mm-hmm. like mixture, you keep that, you're yeah. going to peel it off and then put it in? Okay, interesting. Yeah. And yeah. it makes your cooking, uh, all your food taste way better. Yeah, eh? very cool. <laughs> That's good. I'll try I'll try that the next time. Um, so let's go into... I had a I was thinking about this today for some reason it popped up in my head, but just the idea between obviously like with autophagy, right? So just kind of like making your cells kind of like reborn and coming back stronger. So if you can get that done through intermittent fasting, but you can also get it done through the ketogenic diet. At what point can I just like eat carbs? Uh, but again, I'm all about like you and I are on the same page of like eat healthy, organic, natural stuff. So say I'm eating a very natural, um, diverse macronutrient diet. And I was like, you know what? I want to have like my cells just come back and I want them to kind of repair themselves and come back healthier. If I were to go into say an intermittent fasting period, um, every couple days, I do about 10 hour intermittent fasting every single day anyways, but let's just say I wanted like a good 24 hour fast just to kind of like clean up the system, uh, detoxify and get rid of the toxins. What's the, um, I guess, similarities between going through ketogenic and getting that same cell reproduction compared to intermittent fasting? Yeah, so fasting is the easiest way to induce autophagy, but anyone claiming that they know how long it takes to induce autophagy doesn't know what they're talking about because we don't know how long and we don't have a good measurement of, yeah, even how to track autophagy. Mm. So it's all just very theoretical at this moment. Um, And I don't even, I guess like a 24-hour fast would probably trigger a bit of autophagy but maybe the ideal length is three days maybe the ideal length is five days i don't know if you're gonna get an abundance or like a a good induction of autophagy when you're doing just simple intermittent fasting like um 10 to 12 hour fasting a day is that's actually just not i don't even consider that really a fast that should just be normal to most people you're sleeping for eight hours don't eat for four hours outside of that um but uh yeah so i would say that we don't know um how long you need to fast in in order to induce autophagy but autophagy is actually running on a basal level at all times of the day that's how we like get it's basically um it's being resourceful so if a cell is dying or just not doing its job properly anymore we will take all the building blocks from that cell and repurpose it and that's autophagy so it's actually happening on, on, on a basal level, which means just it's happening on a low level um, at all times in the body. But when we are nutrient deprived, so when we shut down our nutrient sensing pathways like mTOR and IGF-1, so these are um, signals in our body that tell us that there's food available and, uh, and it's triggering growth. So when we shut those down by depriving ourselves of nutrients, we upregulate our fasting um, pathways which are really triggered by AMPK and this is what induces autophagy meaning like we have no energy available um, we're not getting anything from food so let's start breaking down our cells so that we can 
start using those as building blocks instead of getting it from food. Um, and that's really what autophagy is. So you have to really be in a deprived state in order to induce autophagy. And I think that there is research showing that the ketogenic diet is a way to kind of mimic fasting um, for autophagy. I mean, it's definitely a way to mimic fasting in terms of me- metabolism. But I'm not actually too sure about the research on autophagy in that sense, although I will say that the ketogenic diet is known to suppress mTOR and IDF1, which are the two nutrient-sensing pathways that I mentioned um, that would halt autophagy. So if we're suppressing that with a ketogenic diet, then you're probably more likely to get a little bit more autophagy from a ketogenic diet than um, a carb-based diet. Um, But fasting is definitely going to be way more beneficial than a ketogenic diet. And it might be that you have to go further and extend further than 24 hours. I actually just don't know. And I don't think anyone knows, to be honest. Yeah, because it's weird because I've read like a lot of different like research and like resources based on yeah, how like twenty four hour fast is sufficient, and doing like it every three days. I know like you and you've you've met and probably interacted with Ben Greenfield a couple times, right? Um, and I know he has like a whole system. He'll do like I think a three month fast. He'll do a one three month, month. Like no. no, no, no. Like every three <laughs> <laughs> every three months, he'll do like a weekend fast or something like that. Every month, he does like a twenty four hour Sunday fast, and then every two weeks, he's on something. So he has like time frame within the year that he breaks down his fasting rituals to get that benefit mm-hmm. right so it's right. um it's interesting because you see so many different variations of how to approach it then i've you know just different um doctors and experts you know talk about just like i said like a basic eight hour fast a day would kind of produce a little bit of that so it, it's a complicated system but like you said like at least with the ketogenic diet there's like real hard evidence and research based on you know promoting that kind of autophagy right right I think we just need to improve our um, technology and ability to measure autophagy to answer these questions because, like I said, there's no real way to measure it properly, and we're just kind of guessing and so where, theorizing. Where, where and, are they coming? Like, where are not, they coming from then? When, if they're kind of like saying these things, are they just are they just theorizing based on like what are they basing it off of? Well, you can do it in a lab, and there's markers of a top of autophagy, but I don't know if they're really doing this in humans per se. Or uh, if these methods are even that accurate because it's just measuring like breakdown products that would infer that there's autophagy going on. But if there's directly autophagy going on, I don't know if we uh, fully understand that other than what we know from the breakdown process and the different organelles that are involved in autophagy. So we can measure like there's this uh, organelle called the lysosome and that's where we break it's like basically like our trash can of our cell and that's where products are damaged and um on dysfunctional products go they get recycled it's like a little recycling plant and you can measure the activity of our lysosome and then infer if that's if it autophagy has been induced um so it's a lot it's it's very complicated and i'm actually just not that well adept at these scientific methods um but i would but when we're trying to extract from human data, cellular data, and put it into humans, I just we don't have the answers yet. It's that simple. But we can make our best bet with what the knowledge that we do know. And uh, there's no downfall really to a 14, 16 hour intermittent fast every single day, um, unless you're trying to gain a bunch of muscle or body. Like I don't know. 
depending on your goals, mm-hmm. I don't see an issue with a daily intermittent fasting, even if regardless of if autophagy is being induced, there's so many other benefits yeah. to intermittent fasting. Um, and then and, uh, a periodic 24 hour fast or a periodic weekend fast, whatever. These things are actually just normal practices that humans would have endured in an evolutionary perspective because mm-hmm. we didn't have access to food 24 seven or like food at our fingertips, especially not the foods that we have now. Um, so it's actually just a normal uh, state for our body to be in. And if we're not going through periods of fasting, then that could be actually quite unnatural, despite people thinking that fasting is unnatural. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And you can learn a lot from like just the biology, right, of the, the human body and species, right, looking back at like, how did these people survive? And, you know, they they, mm-hmm. they created a community, they created life, and they, they thrived in certain circumstances, and they did it through the resources they had available, right? And it just shows that, Yes, you can survive without having a meal every two hours and be <laughs> deprived, right? Um, let's finish no, off here, kind of take a little bit of a left turn. But more so, I'm always very interested when I talk to healthcare professionals, especially if they're leading experts in their field, just about lifestyle choices, right? Um, living a more well-balanced, fulfilling, um, progressive life. So what are some rituals um, that have worked for you that you've learned from other leading experts? I know you do a lot of different conferences and you just, yeah, this is your life, right? This is what you talk about. This is what you discuss. Um, so what are some things, main points, components of living a more fulfilling, well-balanced um, growth mindset type of life? So definitely when it comes to diet, I have a few kind of check checkpoints that um, help with food choices that I always recommend. For me, it's become second nature, but when I'm trying to describe why I make certain food choices, it kind of makes sense in a couple of couple different steps so the first one is avoiding processed food and eating whole foods mm-hmm. so this means anything in a package anything with a nutrition label um anything in a box bag whatever those are processed foods regardless of ingredients it's been manufactured it's been thrown ingredient it has multiple ingredients so whole foods are that's it they don't have a nutrition label it is the ingredient so that's step one eat whole foods step two um is that I am a, obviously a biased proponent of a low carbohydrate diet, but not necessarily ketosis, um, just simply reducing carbohydrates from the diet because I think that this is just an easy thing that people can adopt in order to avoid processed foods. It kind of goes hand in hand. So when you're limiting carbohydrates, you're limiting uh, um, like 75% of the grocery store, which all have carbohydrates in it. So if you're eliminating process or carbohydrates and that in turn causes you to eliminate processed foods then that's a win-win mm-hmm. so um i mean there's obviously other advantages to being low carb which all of which i mentioned in terms of just longevity and avoiding problems with our metabolism and aiding in metabolic flexibility um that's why i'm a big proponent of low carb um and then embracing fat so uh, we can't be scared of fat and in my eyes when we restrict fat we're also restricting nutrients because a lot of the most nutrient dense foods come in combination or come with fat. So if you're thinking what's the most nutrient dense food on the planet, they're probably, it's probably going to be an animal source. Uh, it's probably going to be like an oily fish, some grass fed beef liver, um, like different organ meats, red meat itself. I like, I picture red meat as its own superfood. Mm-hmm. Um, so these foods actually can be quite fatty. And when we avoid fat, we're also avoiding these nutrient-dense foods, which I think can be detrimental in the long term. 
Um, and then also when we avoid that, we'd probably replace them with carbohydrates, which again, just a bad problem. That's what has been, as soon as the dietary recommendations came into play in like the 1950s of low fat recommendations, carbohydrate consumption skyrocketed. So did obesity rates, so did type 2 diabetes. So that's just a correlation. I'm not saying that's causation, but it's just something to keep in mind. Um, so again, whole foods, minimize carbs, embrace fat. I know it's, no, condensed- oh, sorry, no, sorry, it's funny what? too, but just the idea of like eating more fats increases the bioavailability of the nutrients of certain vegetables and cruciferous vegetables too, right? That kind of exactly. goes, goes hand in hand, right? So We have fat-soluble vitamins, and so we need fat in our diet to be able to absorb them properly. Um, and then intermittent fasting. I think everyone can adopt intermittent fasting. That is such an easy thing. It's, even if you weren't even paying attention to what you eat, just paying attention to when you eat is mm-hmm. actually very powerful. And studies have shown that just limiting the time that people eat will cause them to eat less. Um, so if you are trying to lose weight and you are calorie counting and weighing all your food and et cetera, et cetera, you're just constantly thinking about food. If you just shorten your eating window to a condensed eating window, um, you can probably end up eating in a calorie deficit without all the thought and um, all this preparation. Um, and then if you're eating low carb in combination with this, it's just a more satiating diet that removes the thought process from food. But protein, I can't believe I forgot about protein. Protein is like should be the highlight of your diet because protein comes with so many benefits. Um, it is the most satiating nutrient, so it'll keep you full for longer, and this is how intermittent fasting becomes easier. Um, so if you want to feel full and still be able to lose weight and diet, whatever, um, eat protein. Protein will keep you full. Protein also has a higher thermic effect of food, which means that it actually uh, it requires more energy to break it down compared to fats and uh, carbohydrates. So this just adds to your metabolic rate. Um, it just takes energy to break it down, basically. Uh, so protein, yeah, keeps you full, has a thermic effect of food, and it supports muscle growth. And this is muscle is the organ of longevity. And if we are entering old age with um, low muscle mass and we're not eating enough protein when we're older, um, this can basically risk muscle wasting. And as soon as we start losing our muscle, we it's really hard to gain muscle when we're older. So it's really important to prevent muscle wasting, and you can do that through fasting or through increased protein consumption. Mm-hmm. Well, you can also do it through fasting too. Um, it, that seems counterintuitive, but fasting is actually muscle sparing. Um, but anyways, yeah. So protein, embrace that, lower carbs, eat in a condensed eating window and avoid processed foods and eat whole foods. And this is actually defines um, the sapien diet, which I'm working with uh, one, a coworker and we're kind of creating a program around something called the sapien diet. And it basically outlines everything that I just said. Cool. And those are how I make my food choices, how I recommend people make their food choices. And it, I think that there's a lot of power to adopting those uh, habits when it comes to diet. And then other lifestyle choices, now let's take, let's, I'm going to take a break for two seconds just to save this part for okay. us. And then we're going to let you go off and tell us about the other lifestyle choices, okay? Okay. One second. Okay, back with Christy for part two. So go on to the other lifestyle choices apart from nutritional. Okay, well, this is actually going to be quick because these are just things that I just believe in. So obviously exercise. Um, I am a big proponent of staying active, especially as we age as well. So I, I think of things in terms of longevity. Mm-hmm. So exercise is super important. 
Um, and then community. So uh, we talked about this in the beginning and this is huge. It makes me so happy. I feel so fulfilled when I'm around people. I'm like, I work all day by myself and just having that sense of community really brings, um, so much joy to my life. Sunlight, getting enough, uh, sunshine and exposing ourselves to light and making sure that we're basically setting our circadian rhythm in the morning by exposing yourself to sunlight and avoiding light in the, in the nighttime, which goes into sleep and sleep is so important it's like one of the pivotal things in health that kind of get disregarded and neglected a lot even though it's so important in terms of keeping our metabolism healthy our brain our immune system our cognitive function so anyways sleep is so important i i prioritize that and you can um basically uh make sure your lifestyle habits work around your sleep so not eating too late at night not exposing yourself to bright light at night um different things like that making sure your bedroom is cool um because you want to drop your body temperature before you go to bed there's a lot of different steps you can take towards sleep hygiene but those lifestyle factors are huge in my life and things that i create habits around and uh i mean i'm kind of a freak when it comes to health so I, these are, this is everything I just laid out there is literally my life. Like I dictate my whole day around everything I just said, um, which I think could be hard for people, but if they can take away some of these points, then they're, they're taking a step in the right direction. And that's a good way to view it, right? It's And again, to me, it sounds like this is easy to do, right? Because I, I do it too. And it just kind of seems like it becomes a habit, right? All these things aren't forced upon you. Obviously, these are things that you enjoy to do. They make you feel great. They give you energy. And yeah. it just keeps your body and mind consistent. So like, why wouldn't you do it, right? You want more of it. So I think for a yeah. lot of people, that's the, the tough part off the bat is just that they're making all these separate changes. And it feels overwhelming. But again, if you take one thing at a time, turn that into a habit... And then you approach the next thing and you approach the next and it, and it builds into a lifestyle and it becomes super easy because it's enjoyable and you feel way, totally. way better and everything is working in harmony rather than in conflict. Like it's not fun when you can't get to sleep and you wake up with hypertension and your body's inflamed and you're going through chronic stress. Like all these things are so detrimental to the overall well-being that like you want to improve those things. And as soon as those things start feeling better, it's like, Oh wow, I'll do this for now on. Right. So. Yeah, exactly. And people have to realize that health is goes way beyond just what you eat. Yeah. Um, there's so many factors and, uh, putting stress on yourself because of, you can't follow a certain diet or you're like, yeah, you just go off the rails and whatever. Um, there's other areas in your life that you can perfect and they'll probably perfecting those will probably make you want to eat healthier anyway. Mm. So it's a, it's a good idea to think of health and encompass every factor in your life. Yeah. And like you said, if you do one thing, it usually spawns the next thing, right? It's like if you start sleeping, uh, more appropriately and you're getting a consistent schedule, like you usually want to wake up and you feel better. So you eat better. If you eat better, you want to go to the gym. If you want to go to the gym, you go home and you want to work on that, outside project and it just like keeps kind of going in this cycle where it goes completely the opposite once all those things are turned into a negative right so it gets way easier just because based on you know one thing gets right led into the other right so exactly very cool christy okay so i'm gonna let you go but where can people find you this was an awesome talk learned a lot and yeah i think you provided amazing insight and philosophies on lifestyle but where can people follow you learn from you and yeah just follow your journey well, first off, thanks for having me on. This was super fun. Of course. Um, 
And you can, I'm basically most active on Instagram. So it's at Christy Stores, K-R-I-S-T-I-S-T-O-R-S. Uh, so I post frequently there. You can see what I'm up to. And then I have my website, which is linked in the bio of my Instagram, which is just ChristyStoresTrip.com. And I have all my work and my portfolio portfolio up there and that's where you can find me very cool so there you go people if you want to follow one of the leading experts in ketogenic <laughs> diet and metabolic therapies and just lifestyle again i'm a, i promote people like this because i like it just it's so contagious right it's like it's not like we're promoting something for the you know just for our own selfish purpose it's like no this is actually going to be someone that's going to help you improve your lifestyle and there's a big component of seeing and hearing something over and over and over that eventually it becomes habitual and it's just something that you do naturally right so the more right. you hear about it the more you're exposed to it the easier and better off you're going to be that's my that's my philosophy totally all right all right girl all right guys so that takes care of episode 25 you're done here tune into the next one be sure to subscribe to everything <laughs>